When I was a teenager, about 17 years old, I was getting ready to go to Harding University in Searcy, Arkansas. Now, if you've ever been to Searcy, you know what kind of town it is. It's small, not a whole lot going on. Basically, it's the college and then everything else around it. How many of you guys have been to Searcy before? Okay, it's a long way from here. So I was getting ready to go to Searcy for my freshman year of college. And I thought, well, since it's a small town, since campus is beautiful, I think what I need is a moped. <laughs> so I'm going to spend all my graduation money that I got from people at church to buy a moped, because it's going to be great to be around campus, to get around. I'm not going to spend gas. This is going to be awesome. But as I was walking out the door to go get my moped, I looked at my mom and I said, Mom, I'm not going to get a moped. I'm going to get a motorcycle. She laughed it off. I laughed. And then I went on my way looking for mopeds. And I came home with a motorcycle. The cost of the motorcycle was just as much as the mopeds. And I thought, why, if I can go 80, you know, instead of 40, that sounds better to me. My mom did not take my message seriously. She did not think that I was going to go and actually buy a motorcycle. And when I came home, I said, Mom, I got a motorcycle. And she said, no, you didn't. I said, yeah, I did. I need help to unload it. She and Dad helped out. And Dad was with me. He did say it was OK. But she didn't take me seriously. And in my life, there are two forms in which I'm often not taken seriously. One is, is that you think I'm pulling your leg. Sometimes I joke a little too much, and then when I turn it on and become serious, it's not taken that way. Often it's after a week at camp or doing something with teenagers, and you're kind of joking all the time, and then I get home, and I'm joking with Katie, and she can't tell when I'm serious and when I'm not. Another way is you don't believe what I'm saying because you don't want to believe what I'm saying. Though I didn't know it at the time when I told my mom I was going to buy a motorcycle, she did not want to believe that that would, in fact, be true. And so she didn't take it seriously. Have you ever been in these moments where somebody says something to you or you say something to somebody else that is meant to be serious, that is meant to be important, but it's not taken that way? And in these minor, in, in these moments, uh, a few things happen. One is it could just become a very funny scenario. When I came home with the motorcycle, it was not funny at the time. Now it is. And extreme laughter can ensue. Or maybe it's a time where it was a little bit more serious and there was some confusion there. I one time worked out with a teenager. I said, I'll be at the gym at 5.30 a.m. I show up at 5.30. He's not there. I text him. He doesn't text back. And when he finally does, he said, I thought 5.30 was in the evening. I said, it's AM, and you are a junior, and you should know this. There was confusion, but it was minor. But what happens when the message that is missed, when the message that is misunderstood is one of extreme importance? Not just a meetup, not just a small purchase, not just some miscommunication, but life-saving. What happens when we miscommunicate life-saving 
messages. The scripture in John that Billy just read is the aftermath is the aftermath of what was considered a difficult teaching by Jesus. Right? John 6, 60 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard, this is a difficult teaching. Who can listen to it? And if you skip down six verses, it goes on to say, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Okay, now I'm not going to get into what the teaching of Jesus was here at the pulpit because you guys are going to do that in class. It was Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And when he declared this, it was something that they could not grasp, that they could not chew. It was too difficult, and so they chose to walk away. Notice who it says walked away at this difficult teaching. It didn't say that the crowds walked away. It didn't say that those who were watching from a distance walked away. It didn't say the Pharisees, the Sadducees walked away. It says when the disciples walked away. When it was people, men, maybe women were present, when people who had chosen to follow Jesus had already said, yes, I'm going to go with you. When they heard something difficult that they could not grasp, they chose to walk away. Jesus' message here was meant to be taken seriously, but they couldn't believe it, and I think large in part because they didn't want to believe it. And in class, you're going to go into John 6, hopefully in some, uh, in some depth to look at that. But I think they didn't take it because they didn't want to. But what I love, and often Peter gets a bad rap because he's often saying things off the cuff. He's not thinking things through. But in verse 68 and 69, if you want to look there, we're in uh, chapter 6, verse 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, well, actually 67. When he looks at the 12, Jesus says, you, do you want to leave too? Do you want to go? Now's your time. Now's your chance. You can go. And Peter looks at him and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. For we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love Peter's response here because I think he brings out three just basic central truths about Jesus. One is when he says, to whom shall we go? He says, I have none but you. I don't desire anybody else. I don't desire to follow anybody else. I just want to be with you. Where else would I go? If I'm not with you, I might as well be nowhere. To whom shall I go? Why does he feel that way? Because Jesus has the words to eternal life. When Jesus says he's the bread of life. When he speaks, he gives access to eternal life. And Peter recognizes that what this man speaks, he speaks with authority and he speaks truth. And I don't want to go anywhere because you have the words to eternal life. Not my folks back home, not anybody else, but you. Why? Because I, Peter, and I think he's speaking for the apostles. I think he's speaking for all of them. He says, we believe that you are the Holy One, the Son of God. 
going to be with you because you have the words to eternal life and because I believe you are the Holy One, you are the Chosen One, you are the Son of God. And at its base level, that's what those who walked away couldn't believe, was that Jesus was sent from God as the bread of life. Peter and the others took Jesus' message seriously. They entered into a Jesus-centered way of living, into a Jesus-centered way of life. In the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church, author Kara Powell and Brad Griffin, they studied 250 churches that they considered bright spots. Okay? You might be saying, okay, what made them a bright spot? By the way, if you want to write on the back of, of your handout the name of that book and read it, I would encourage you to do so. All right? Um, but they studied 250 churches uh, that were bright spots. What made them a bright spot? They're engaging young people ages 15 to 29. All right? And as they studied these churches, what they found was they are growing spiritually, emotionally, missionally, and then sometimes but often not numerically, that they are figuring out how to attract young people ages 15 to 29 to be a part of the spiritual journey that happens in their context. They're inviting them into the kingdom of God. And what they identified in this book was six different or six common threads among these churches that allow them to effectively engage young people. Right? What does it mean to effectively engage? Churches that are involving and retaining young people in the congregational community and helping them develop a vibrant faith both in Jesus or a vibrant faith in Jesus, both corporately and individually. Right? So they're engaging this community, which if you've read any literature as of recent, maybe even the last 10, 15 years, I don't know how long it's been out. But it is said that the church is on the decline. Why? Because we're not keeping those within our church. That when they, choose to gra when they graduate, they also choose to leave their faith. And one of the common threads, and the one that I want to discuss today, is taking Jesus' message seriously. What they found in these churches that were vibrant, that were growing, that were not just aging out, but encouraging young people to be disciples and follow along, one of the core commitments that that church had, common thread, was that they took Jesus' message seriously. That they invited people into a Jesus-centered way of life. One young man, Adam, age 26, he put it this way. I think the goal for our church is not really effectiveness with young people, but serving and following Jesus. And young people like me are attracted to churches that want to do that. The goal is not to engage 15 to 29-year-olds, not to engage young people. The goal is to follow Jesus in a way where they want to be a part, where they want to engage in that. And as I share some of what this book says and some ideas uh, that I have, I don't want you sitting here to say, well, then he's saying we're not doing that or we're, we're not there, okay? Because I think there's places we do that great and there's other places there's some work on. I am sharing information, so I don't want you to think, well, now that's all on us. He thinks we're not doing that. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think when we look at the younger generation, sometimes I and maybe you, you feel like you can't ask too much 
of your young people. You can't ask too much of your teenager or of these young adults. And so we choose to lower the bar, the standard of expectations. We choose to decrease demands because if we don't soften the message of Jesus, if we don't, if we say, hey, you can be a part of Jesus, but you don't have to do this, then we won't lose them. And so we choose to soften it. But the truth is, is that in doing this and not presenting the gospel in its entirety, is that in doing this, we have already lost our young people, even if we keep them. Why? Because we're not calling them to a radical life-changing following into following Jesus as the creator. You see, what we have done is we've set the bar so low, the expectations so low, because we want to keep them around. But in doing so, the opposite has happened. They choose to leave. Because what these studies found was that young people, they're running toward churches that take Jesus' message seriously, and live it out in radical ways. They're drawn to a Jesus that sets people free. They're drawn to a Jesus that takes real broken people and restores them into wholeness. They're drawn to a Jesus that invites his followers into a life of discipleship and real sacrifice. They're drawn to a Jesus that, is, that embodies the fullness of God with his unconditional love and his unending faithfulness. The messages that Jesus sends, they're all in on. And I hope even as saying it, you find yourself saying, I like hearing about a Jesus like that as well and the difference that he has made in my life. And this is good news, right? Because the kingdom, because Jesus' message was radical. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Okay, when Jesus comes onto the scene, I want to give you guys just a few uh, messages that Jesus uh, spent some time talking about. In Mark chapter 1, 15, when he comes onto the scene, you find him saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' message was about the kingdom of God. And I know the kingdom of God is a convoluted term, and there's lots that goes with it. But what is Jesus saying? That the kingdom of God is, at, is here. That it is present. I think he could have pointed to himself as part of that answer and said, the kingdom of God is here. The reign of God is not a spatial category, but a dynamic event in which God intervenes powerfully in human affairs to achieve his unfading purposes. And when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying, hey, God's about to do something. And he's going to start. He started a long time ago, but you're going to see it now in the present. It's a word that announces an event, the coming of God's new world which is now breaking in to the present. So Jesus' message was about the kingdom of God. And then what did he say about the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33? Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So it's not just that the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand, watch it unfold, but also seek it first so that all these things will also be added unto you. 
And then in Luke chapter 9, a verse we know all very well, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits its soul? Not only seek first the kingdom of God, but in doing so, Leave your life behind. Come and follow me. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross because in doing so, you think you've lost everything, but really you have gained everything. And in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor at as yourself. Jesus is at the center of the gospel. Period. He's at the center of the good news. His message about the kingdom of God and that it's worth following, it hinged on him. And because Jesus is at the center of the gospel, he does require hard things. And what I find to be true, and I hope it's an encouragement to you, is that young people are not running away from a gospel that requires hard things, but I believe that they run toward it. I believe that they want to see lives, lives that are marked by sacrifices, by doing hard things, by a gospel that permeates, uh, that permeates our entire lives. But what research in the book has also showed is that churches over time, they have unintentionally created, uh, I'm going to use the term soft gospels, okay, knowing that it's not the full gospel, okay, uh, unintentionally have created these soft gospels that distract from this kind of living because over time, and I find myself doing this, we've emphasized, um, we've emphasized behavior over everything. Don't get drunk. Don't do this, don't do that, don't have sex, don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie. Do this, do that. None of those things are wrong. All of those things are true. We should not do those things, and there are things that we should do. But what happened over time, and being taught in that way, I myself was there, was that uh, you ended up finding yourself, uh, they call it moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD for short. So it's moralistic, meaning the religious young people equate faith with being a good moral person. All right. So even within these bright spots, what they found was, uh, was young people who have this kind of gospel in mind. All right. Uh, that faith is all about being a good and moral person. Generally speaking, it's all about being nice. Faith is therapeutic for me. It's a means to feel better about myself. To say, hey, I did something good today. I went to church. Or I helped somebody, and so now I feel better. And they dumb it down to that. Or deism, meaning that God exists, but this God is not involved in human affairs with regularity. The MTD gospel, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And what they have found is that this kind of gospel puts God in a place kind of like a butler, simply inspiring us to be cordial with others. 
One student put it this way. When they asked, hey, what is the gospel? They said, the central message of the gospel is that someone is always there for you and that there are many different paths that you can take, but ultimately they lead to the same thing, which is heaven. I feel like there are many good things you can do and many bad things you can do, but no matter what, you're always going to be forgiven, even if you think something is unforgivable. God's like this magic person that you can always cure it and can make it okay, and there's always going to be a happy place, even when you are in your darkest of darks. There's always going to be a light that is there for you. This was the description of the gospel to this student. What's missing? Go ahead. What's missing? Jesus. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the sacrifice that comes from following Jesus. They missed the most important part. They got everything that they thought was important around it, but missed that it was the person of Jesus who is at the center of the gospel. Why? Because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what happened over time is when we elevate just behaviors, this is what you should be doing, then we end up with a gospel that looks like that, that leaves Jesus completely out of it. And we miss the whole point. Where did she get this gospel? Where did this student get it? It didn't come out of thin air. Likely, it was a tame version of the gospel that permeates both her family and her church. She didn't make it up. It was people who were teaching her. And this emphasis on behavior has taught a moral code where God is not overly involved. Right living over right believing. Granted, right believing without right living isn't good either. They suggest three shifts that these, not suggest, in these churches that they studied, they found three shifts uh, that these churches had been making. One is they talked less about abstract beliefs and more talk about Jesus. They focused on the person of Jesus, not so much these abstract thoughts that sometimes get lost, but they talked about Jesus and they talked about Jesus often so that the kids can get the message that Jesus is at the center. The next shift that these churches were doing was they would focus on a redemptive narrative. Okay? So when I say, hey, they talked a lot about Jesus, you may say, okay, what happened to the Old Testament? What about the parts where Jesus uh, wasn't mentioned or he wasn't around? I'm not saying ignore those things and forget that those things are there, but when we focus on the redemptive narrative of the gospel, when we focus on the story, then we see how Jesus is a part of everything that happened before he came onto the scene as a human and what happens afterwards. We place Jesus at the center of God's story. And when we place Jesus at the center of his story, they say it like this. We open an entryway through which young people can discover an enormous house of faith. Within its walls, they find a massive and complex floor plan. 
It's corridors and chambers containing storied histories that when combined tell a surprisingly coherent family account of an unlikely clan and the God who refuses to abandon their own ruin. You find the true message of why Jesus was here, why he was sent, and how it fits into everything. Narrative theology, it's interpreting each part of the Bible within the whole unfolding story of God and God's people. In your class, when you study John 6, Jesus is going to mention Moses quite a bit. Why did he do that? What was the point? There's this unfolding story within the Bible, and we need to, as we read stories, start pinpointing where things land and how things fit together because it's not disjointed. It's incredibly coherent from start to finish. And though I don't know how everything always fits together, the major parts, I do. And our kids need to start seeing that Jesus was not an afterthought, but he was the thought from the beginning. In Hebrews chapter 1, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high. What is he doing? He's saying God spoke like this. And now he's speaking like this. He's putting it into context of where they are at in the grand narrative. The third shift that they made was less talk about heaven and more talk about life here and now. And I'm not suggesting that we don't talk about heaven, we don't talk about hell. Those are absolutely important. And they should be mentioned. And they should be talked about. But what they are finding is that our kids, they don't just want to be saved for some, from something. They want to be saved for something. I'll say it again. They don't just want to be saved from something. Hell, they want to be saved for something. They want to get to work. They want to be significant. They want lives that are filled with action. Young people are compelled by a faith that promises not only reward at the end, but also a transformation now in everyday life. They want to do that which is hard. They need people to show them what it looks like to do that which is hard and to stay faithful when it is, when it is difficult. They want to be transformed in the here and the now and not just for some time in the long distance. And there's always that tension, here but not yet, right? Paul talks about it often. And so you have to mention both, but what I find to be more compelling with the students that I talk to is the changes that affect now and today and the part that they can play in the world. It's a reminder of Dallas Willard's insistence that taking Jesus's message seriously means rather than succumbing to the gospel of sin management that mostly deals with reward when we die, we pay attention to real life in this moment, in this place, with these people. 
The gospel is not simply something from 2,000 years ago or for something 2,000 years from now. It's for today. One leader said it this way, the gospel is not a moment or a transaction. It's not even simply a message. It is actually a new way of living, a new reality that is intended to pervade everything in this life, and it has both present and eternal implications, both present and eternal. We must find a balance of challenging the here and the now, and then looking forward to that which is yet to come. Because I think when we just focus on the reward, and we don't say you're transformed today for this purpose, then we give people the opportunity to just sit back and to say, well, I did this, this, and this today, so I must be okay. Jesus desired deep transformation in his followers. And you knew they had deep transformation when they, came, when they rose to the challenges that they faced. And they didn't abandon their faith based off of a difficult teaching or based off of difficult circumstances. But they affected change in the life that they were living in, in the present. I'm not suggesting, I'll say it again, that we don't talk about heaven. Tommy did a fine series, what, a month ago, maybe two months, on heaven. What I am suggesting is that we call not our young people and ourselves into participating and challenging them. Participate in this in the now and then challenge them because what you'll find is that they will rise to the challenge. I think we, when we are challenged, we often rise to the challenge. Here's what I think our kids at this church need. Maybe I'll just say it this way. Here's what I think our kids at all churches need, young people everywhere. They need adults, they need parents, and they need teachers that model obedience as a response to grace, not a prerequisite to grace. Teachers that model obedience as a response to grace, not a prerequisite to grace. When correcting, when training, we reframe why we do what we do. A few weeks ago, uh, Katie and I had, uh, we had decided before Sunday morning that we were going to go and get snow cones uh, after church. Somebody was doing a fundraiser, and so that's what we're going to do. Uh, lo and behold, the majority of our kids that day did not behave in a way that they should have, and so we said, well, no snow cones for anybody because this is what uh, you guys did, but Kate and I said, well, but we want snow cones, so we're still going to go. <laughs> Parenting 101. <laughs> and so we go, and Katie gets out with Camille. She was the only one that did well that day. Uh, she gets out, and they go and get snow cones, and I look at the uh, other three girls in the back of the van, and I said, you guys want snow cones? Yeah, yeah, we want snow cones. What did you do today to deserve a snow cone? I didn't t tell them I was sharing this story, so I apologize to them. What did you do to deserve a snow cone? And Addie looks at me, and she comes up with a pretty good response. Well, I helped my sister do this, and so I think I deserve a snow cone. Okay, good. Looked at Olivia, 
why did you deserve a snow cone? And she came up with a similar answer, copying what Addie said. Then I looked at my third daughter, Ellie, and I said, why do you deserve a snow cone? Big tears in her eyes. They just start coming down. It's kind of a weird response. Don't know what to do. Ellie, why do you deserve a snow cone? Tears get bigger. She starts weeping. Why are you crying, Ellie? Because I can only think of the reasons that I don't deserve a snow cone. That's what I was looking for the whole time. They didn't deserve snow cones that day. What I wanted them to see was that with grace, it challenges them to then walk in obedience. And Ali's answer was the perfect, it's a gospel representation. I don't know why I, I can only think of the reasons that I don't. Guess what? I'm going to give it to you anyway. Why? Because you recognize that. And all three got snow cones. But we need to reframe obedience as a response to grace. The rest of that day, guess what? Ellie was perfect because she knew she got to do something that she shouldn't have been able to do. She didn't deserve it, but she walked in grace and obedience flowed from there. Our kids need adults who are willing to be a companion on their spiritual journey and willing to ask questions like, hey, where are you at these days on your journey? And what issues are you wrestling with at this point when it comes to God? I think sometimes the question that we want to ask is, why haven't you given your life to Jesus? Why are you waiting? Do it. Do it now. And I think there's a time and a place for that. But what they need is adults and other people who are willing to walk next to them on their spiritual pilgrimage and ask questions, open-ended questions of what they're thinking because they are willing to share. For teachers, for parents, when teaching, Allow the Bible to speak for itself without always needing a moral component to go with it. Sometimes the stories themselves teach enough. And sometimes we say, well, this story is here because of this moral component, right? Jesus did this, and so it teaches us to do this. That might be true, but they might miss the whole point of why that story was there, and it's to learn the person of Jesus and to get to know him. And so often, and I have to fight myself on it, this story, we need to do this. And that's the point of the story. What did I do? I dumbed it down to a moral, simple moral obligation. That it may be true, it may be right, but I may have gone against the message that was truly meant to be seen in that. Create space for wonder, for questioning, for reflecting. A lot of times we just want to give the answers, but give them space to wonder and to question and to reflect as part of walking on their journey, to express doubts and then talk through those doubts. Because doubts will come, and doubts are okay. And let's talk through them. What we need and what every church needs is a whole congregation that takes Jesus' message seriously not just in pockets of people, not just families, but the whole congregation. Why? Because we are the body, period. And it takes all of us because they're watching all of us. It takes all of us 
to know and to believe Jesus' message and to take him seriously and to do hard things where our kids see the sacrifice that it takes to follow Jesus the way that he has called us to. One that's way beyond just being good, way beyond just coming to church, but one that when they see, they go, I don't know how they got through that because here's how I would have reacted. But when they went through a death in the family, they still came on Sunday morning and shared how great God is. They need to see that. Uh, my grandma, and I'm about done. My grandma is, uh, she has 13 kids. She's 94. Uh, we just saw her for a family reunion. So my mom is one of 13, okay? Um, and their parents were very strict. It was really lots of behavior stuff, right? Like the girls couldn't wear shorts. You had to wear pants. They worked on a farm all the time. I mean, it was one rule after another. And just growing up in that family, you, you can see it. When all the siblings get together, you can see, you know, uh, what that was like and, and that kind of thing. And I, I looked at my dad once and I said, uh, I don't understand because all of them follow Jesus, all 13 of them. And if I was in that family and it was all about do this, do this, do this, I'm kind of a rebel, and I would back away. I wouldn't want to do that. And my dad looked at me, and he said, that may be true that they had lots of rules to go with it. He said, but what you don't see is that Mama and Papa Sykes, who couldn't rub two nickels together, lived on a farm. When a family was going hungry, they would give them their entire cow and say, we can manage without it. You take it. What you don't see was stories like that where the kids witnessed Jesus' message being taken in a way that required sacrifice and that gave grace to others. All I could see was the rules. All the kids could see was what their parents were doing in the name of Jesus Christ in a way that sacrificed for others to know who Jesus is. So the question this morning is, are you taking Jesus' message seriously? Do you find yourself living the radical life that he has called you to? Life where you do things that you don't necessarily want, but you know it's what the Spirit calls you to do. Because it takes all of us. It takes all of us doing it together to say, when Jesus looks at us, will you too also leave. No, because you have the words to eternal life, and we know that you are the Son of God. And because of that truth, and because of that message, we as a whole, we as Glen Allen, will take Jesus's message seriously, not so that we can attract other families and attract young people, but by, a, by the byproduct of that is that's exactly what it does. Let's take Jesus's message seriously. And let's follow him. Let's stand and sing.